Good morning to all of you on this beautiful, well, cloudy Good Friday morning. Our theme for this Easter is a hope to share. And whether you're a regular at this church or just visiting this morning, I think we can all agree that we are living in a time where people need hope. And there's nothing worse than people without hope. In my marriage counseling, I often encounter marriages where people don't typically come to counseling when their marriage is in a good place, although I would advise it. They don't even come when their marriage is in a bad place. They come when their marriage has hit rock bottom, when they've lost all hope. And my first job as a marriage counselor is to um, remind them that there is hope for their marriage in Christ. And this morning, I want to call out into the darkness that is 2021 to a people broken and battered by something we couldn't see coming, a people with every right to feel hopeless this morning. And I want to offer you hope. But I want to clarify that word hope for a moment because I'm not speaking about hope in the typical way we would use it in most circumstances today. Today, when we use the word hope, we use it in ways like this. It relates to wishful thinking. For example, I I hope the Proteas can win a test match. Uh, (laughs) I, I hope to win the lottery. We don't really believe any of these things are going to happen, but we can wish for them too. That's the kind of hope we often speak about. It's a wishful thinking, and it's not very helpful for us, is it? Buying a lottery ticket, hoping it's going to solve all of your financial problems, is not helpful to you. And I want to clarify, that's not the hope that I'm speaking about. Um, The hope that the Bible speaks about, the hope that is offered in Christianity, is far different to a hope that is just wishful thinking. The hope that I'm speaking of this morning is not founded upon circumstances outside of our control, but it is founded on the promises of God. When you believe that God will do what He has promised, and you put your trust in those promises, then you have Christian hope. I'm going to repeat that again. When you believe that God will do what He has promised, and you put your trust in those promises, you have Christian hope, as John Piper calls it. This is far greater than just wishful thinking. I hope things turn out okay. This is a sure hope because it is on a strong foundation. It is founded upon the promises of God. I'm offering you something this morning that you can hold to with confidence because it has a strong foundation. My sermon title this morning is a weird one. It's called Strange Friday. And the reason I've chosen this odd title is because there are some peculiar things that happened the day Jesus died on the cross. We're going to look at just three of them in the short time that we have this morning. Please open. It's going to be on the screen, but I encourage you to open your Bibles if you have them with you or your Bible apps. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 to 39. Mark's account of the death of Jesus on the cross. 
And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And I haven't included it in the earlier or in my base text, but just before verse 33, uh, it's the first three hours of the crucifixion and it's going along fairly normally. There's nothing too strange about Jesus' crucifixion in the first three hours. In fact, his mockers are mocking him relentlessly and they're enjoying the normality of proceedings. They were witnessing uh, hundreds of crucifixions in their lifetime and this one appeared to be going just like every other one they had ever seen. But something very strange happens at the third hour at noon. And my first point this morning is the strange darkness that we read about in verse 33. I'll read it again. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, there will be mocking still to follow, but the mocking is not with the same amount of confidence that there was in the first three hours. It starts to have an undertone of fear and doubt underpinning it. And we're going to look at that in a little while. And so the first peculiar thing that happens is the strange darkness. And I want to uh, spend some time unpacking it and trying to understand what was actually happening. It's at noon, the time of the day where the sun usually shines the brightest. And um, those of you who are more skeptical among us, and I would welcome that. I think it's good to question. I think it's good to try and understand things. But you might try and reason away what might be happening was not particularly supernatural or miraculous. Possibly it was an eclipse. Eclipses do happen and the, the world can go dark even at the time where it's meant to be at its brightest. But what is interesting uh, when you look at the facts is it becomes very difficult to believe this was an eclipse. Eclipses happen at new moon. That's when they happen. There's a specific time that they can happen, solar eclipses. It happens at new moon. It can only happen then. Scientifically, it can only happen at new moon, a solar eclipse. And Passover isn't on a calendar of a set date. Passover only happens at full moon. It can only happen at full moon. And the fact that this is happening at the time of the Jewish Passover is showing us that it is at full moon at that point in time in the year. It's impossible for the solar eclipse to occur during the full moon. The other problem we have, if you want to be skeptical and believe this was just some kind of normal darkness, is uh, the longest time a solar eclipse can create total darkness, 
the absolute maximum time it can do that is seven and a half minutes. You can have partial darkness for a few hours, but you can only have total darkness for seven and a half minutes. And our text this morning, I want to read it to you again, says clearly, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This was three hours of total darkness. This was very strange. In fact, I would say it was miraculous. It was of a supernatural nature. For the whole land to be covered in darkness for three hours at midday during a full moon is nothing short of a miracle. But why did God bring darkness onto the land at noon for three hours? Well, the diligent Jew might have remembered that there was another time in the Old Testament where darkness covered the land. It happened at the ninth plague in Exodus. Darkness covers the land for three days. And what follows after that is the firstborn in the land are killed. And Warren uh, Weeseby, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but he's a, uh, one of the commentators I read. He says this, The darkness of Calvary was an announcement that God's firstborn and beloved son, the Lamb of God, was giving his life for the sins of the world. The strange darkness was followed by a strange cry. Jesus is about to utter one of the strangest statements he's ever made. In verse 34, he cries out and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I, I want to be honest with you this morning. I've struggled with this statement ever since I was a young believer. And it's 25 years later. I'm not sure I understand it much better today. My initial struggles were more along the lines of a question. The question I would ask myself when I read that was, didn't Jesus know why God had forsaken him? Surely he knew that when he took on the sins of every person who ever lived, that he would be forsaken by God for at least a time. Wasn't this all part of a plan? Why does he appear to be losing the plot in this moment? I won't pretend to know the mind of Christ in this pivotal moment upon the cross, apart from what is revealed to us in Scripture, apart from what he utters. And I believe that what he utters, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a genuine question. He is legitimately asking in that moment. For the first time in eternity, Jesus is experiencing separation from God. Think about that. Not just in his lifetime on earth as a man, but in all of eternity past. God has always been in fellowship with God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been together, I want to say from the beginning, but we know there is no beginning. They are the beginning. And for the first time in eternity, something which doesn't make sense happens. God gets separated from God. And I can't understand it. I can't explain it to you very well. I just know that in this moment, it happens. 
And his sentence, why have you forsaken me, confirms it. I know that Jesus is carrying my sin in that moment. The sinless Savior hung upon the tree. And God turns his face away from his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. The impossible happens. And God does it because he loves us. He wants to do it because of his great love for you and for me. And Jesus willingly hangs on the cross. He does it willingly. Even in this terrible moment, he hangs there willingly because of his great love for you and for me. I'm not the only one who struggles with this passage of Scripture. In my preparation, I was quite encouraged to read about a great man called Martin Luther. Spurgeon tells a story in one of his sermons, and I'm going to read it to you. So Spurgeon says this about Martin Luther. He sat down in his study to consider this text. Hour after hour, that mighty man of God sat still, and those who waited on, on him came into the room again and again. And he was so absorbed in his meditation that they almost thought he was a corpse. He moved neither hand nor foot and neither ate nor drank, but sat with his eyes wide open like one in a trance, thinking over these wondrous words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when after many long hours in which he seemed to be utterly lost to everything that went on around him, he rose from the chair, someone heard him say, God forsaking God. No man can understand that. And so he went his way. So if you are wrestling with the statement this morning, then you are in good company. Luther's, not mine. And those who watched him also struggled. So confident in their mockery in the first three hours, one might have expected them to continue to mock with confidence. Of course God has forsaken you. You claimed to be God. This would not have been out of line if you read their earlier uh, statements of mockery. It says they wagged their heads as they walked past him and they derided him. But it gets interesting to see their response after sitting in darkness for three hours and Jesus' strange behavior on the cross. They start to ask some serious questions. They ask, is he calling for Elijah? Let us wait and see if Elijah is going to come. What were they talking about? Well, the prophet Malachi prophesied that before the great and awesome day of the Lord, Elijah would come back. And these people who were ready to crucify Jesus on the cross and mock him for everything that he had said, we're starting to fear that now was the time when Elijah was going to come back and confirm everything that Jesus had been saying. They were afraid. And they were asking some big questions. But the strangest moment was about to come. I want you to look at verse 38 with me. In verse 38, this is my third point this morning. It's called the strange curtain. This is what it says. 
and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The strangest thing that happened that day didn't happen on the mountain where Jesus was being crucified. It happened in the temple. Now, apart from the known fact that curtains don't typically tear themselves in pieces, I don't know if you've ever observed that. I would flee from that house if that ever happened. Um, This was no ordinary curtain. It was probably eight inches thick. Here comes my illustration you've all been waiting for. This is a very thin piece of paper. My ability to tear it, I haven't uh, tried and tested this, I just have faith it's going to happen, is easy. Because it's thin. There you go. I've not embarrassed myself so far. Hopefully I haven't torn my sermon notes. I could put several papers together and it could get a bit more challenging but I still have faith that I'm going to be able to do it and I can it can get thicker and I can still get it done now I can't measure how wide that is but I'm guessing it's less than an inch ha this is probably two inches or three inches thick now I'm not the strongest man uh, And maybe there's someone in here who could get this done. And I suppose I could call you up and you could show off. But I'm going to legitimately give this a go. Okay. (laughs) This this was a gift from a person probably sitting in the congregation. (laughs) Okay. I'm not going to make... I can do some damage, but I am struggling. There might be someone here who can get it done. I doubt it, though. Two inches. Listen to this. The curtain was eight inches thick. It was 60 feet long. It was 20 feet wide. It required 300 men just to carry it. On its own, it tears from top to bottom. And even if man was somehow involved in this miraculous event, it would be most likely that he would start tearing it from the bottom. But almost as if to show that God himself was doing it, the curtain is torn from the top to the bottom, completely torn in two. And the space that it had hidden behind is laid wide open. I want to spend some time this morning explaining the significance of that to you. Because this is the main thrust of the message for you this morning. To understand the significance of the torn curtain, one must first understand why the curtain was there in the first place. Why would you need such a big curtain, such a heavy curtain, such a thick curtain, a curtain that 300 men can carry? There's got to be a significant reason for this, and there is. You see, the Jewish temple had different sections. It had an outer courts where every, nearly everyone could come, even women. And it had an inner court where only some could go. And then it had a very special part behind the curtain where no one could go. The only person who ever went into that place was the high priest. And he went once a year 
carrying sacrifices for the whole of the Jewish nation. And once a year, the uh, nation would gather and they would watch the high priest enter into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. And he would enter in wearing bells on his feet and a rope tied to his ankles because when sin enters into the holy place, it can get destroyed. It should get destroyed. It's only by God's grace that the high priest might survive this moment. And he did from time to time. But sometimes he didn't. And when they would hear the, um, the bell stop ringing, they would drag the high priest out by his feet. And entering into the Holy of Holies would kill you. That's why the curtain was so thick. They didn't want anyone to accidentally land there. There's a story in the Old Testament of when the Ark of the Covenant was behind the curtain and that represented God's physical presence. And there was a story where they moved the Ark of the Covenant and you weren't allowed to touch it. And uh, they were carrying it with cattles and the one cattle stumbles and the Ark starts to slide off and the, the person carrying it uh, with a piece of wood, a wood slate, uh, makes the mistake of trying to protect the Ark and touching it and stopping it from falling off. The moment he touches it, he dies. Because sinful people cannot enter into the holy presence of God. Except the high priest, once a year, and never without blood. He always had blood sprinkled on him from animal sacrifice, and the hope was he would survive. The purpose of the veil was to protect sinners from accidentally entering into the holy place. Even today, there is a sign outside the Jewish temple, and it says on it, Orthodox Jew, be warned, do not enter into this temple. Why? Because they don't know where the Holy of Holies is anymore. It's been reconstructed where they think the temple was, and they don't know which spot was the Holy of Holies, and they still believe that if they will trample accidentally upon that holy ground, they will die. So there is a sign. If you go visit Israel today, if you go visit Jerusalem, if you go stand at the temple, which is a tourist attraction more than anything else, especially to the Orthodox Jew, they have a sign saying, do not enter in here. That's how reverent they are over the holy place where God's presence uh, dwells. The purpose of the veil was to separate the sinner from the presence of God. And when Jesus died on the cross, that veil gets torn into from top to bottom by God. And what is the message that he's sending you and everyone? He's saying to you, sinner, you can come. You can come. There's no longer a need to protect you. That's what the songs we've been singing about today have been saying. That's what Matt prayed about earlier. God's message to sinners is, come, the veil is torn in two, the way is open, you can come in. There's nothing to stop you from coming into the presence of God anymore. Friend, do you understand what Christ has done for you this morning? Can you see why we call Strange Friday, my sermon, Good Friday? And even this morning, this is really my heart for you. Even if you're a believer, I still feel like some of you are coming into God's presence this morning, but somehow you're staying in the outer courts. Somehow you're coming to observe and to look and to listen, 
but you are feeling so overwhelmed by sin in your, your life and your heart, you don't feel like you can approach the throne room of God this morning. You don't feel like you can come and enter in. And the message to you and the cross this morning to you and the torn veil to you is come. Come. You can enter in. The way is open for you this morning. And if you've never committed your life to Christ, Christ is saying you can come and have a personal relationship with God. In Hebrews, they call the veil his flesh. His flesh on the cross is the veil, torn, broken, and now open for you to come and enter in to the very presence of God. You can have a relationship with Him. Many people in this room can testify to that. A real personal relationship with God, not just a distant religion that we come and we attend services every now and again and then move off, but we can enter into God's presence in every moment, even now. Some of you are doing that as you're sitting here. You're praying and experiencing a living relationship with, with God through Christ. I've got a, a, a text that I want you to read, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It's going to be on the screen. And the, the Hebrews writer uh, unpacks so well what happens when that veil gets torn. Listen to what he says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Why? Without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. There it is, the hope that is founded on the promises of God. Can you imagine for a moment being a young Jewish boy or girl, watching the most holy man in the land, the great, the, not the great, the high priest, wearing bells and a rope and walking forward with fear. There's no confidence in this approach into the Holy of Holies. You don't know if your sacrifice is going to be accepted. You don't know if you're coming back out alive. Can you imagine the reverence and awe as a little boy and girl you would have for this holy place that not even the most holy man in the land can enter in with any kind of confidence, just fear and trepidation. What kind of reverence and awe you would have had for that place and the thought that you could never approach it. And listen to what Scripture says to you now because of Jesus and the perfect sacrifice of God on the cross. It says you can come with confidence. You can approach with confidence. You can enter in with confidence. No more fear of, is this holy God going to utterly destroy me? He accepts you because of what Jesus has done on the cross. The blood that the priest used to poured over himself was just animals and they had to repeat it year after year. You never have to do that. You are covered if you are in Christ this morning. You are covered by the blood of the perfect lamb. And he is the great high priest. He doesn't go in once a year. He's sitting at God's right hand every single moment, living and praying and interceding for you. You can come in. What a wonderful message. 
to the Jew and to you this morning. This is the hope that is offered to you this morning. Another verse, I'm going to move quickly here. Hebrews 6 verse 19, it says, We have the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. It's a sure hope. It's not a wishful hope. And Hebrews 10 verse 23, I want to read it again. It says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. As I close out this morning, I want to draw your attention to three responses that we see through the people that were watching Jesus on the cross. The first response is, and you can go and check it in verse 29 and verse 32 because we haven't read it this morning, but it's flat out mockery from many people. Many people choose to mock what has happened and the message of the cross. That's the first response this morning, and we see that evidently present even today. The second response that we see, you might be able to relate to the first one in some way. I can. There was a time in my life when I didn't believe, where I didn't think that anything Jesus did for me had any significance for me. I might not have gone as far as outright mockery, but I uh, did not believe at all, and you could not convince me. Perhaps this morning, the second response you can relate better to in verse 36. This is where some questioned and were waiting for answers. And this morning, you might be in the room having questions, and you're not ready to commit because you have questions. And there's nothing wrong with having questions, except for the time is short. How long are you going to wait to make a decision to commit to Christ, the most important decision you will ever make. Which brings me to the final response. We see in the centurion, in the final verse, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Many mocked, some questioned, but one chose to believe. You can make that choice this morning. The veil is torn. The way is open. No one is too far gone. The reason we call this Good Friday is because it's good news. And it's good news offered to sinners. I'm standing before you not as a pastor, and some of you might hold a pastor in a higher regard than you should. I'm a sinner standing before you just like you. But I enter into the presence of God because of what Jesus has done for me. I'm in Christ. And you can make that decision to be in Christ today. You can choose to accept that what he did on the cross, he did it for you. And you put your trust in that. And you commit your life to him. And we're going to have some communion in a moment. You can see communion in front of you. And I want to read a verse from Isaiah church, if you're in the outer courts this morning, if you're looking on from afar, make the decision to draw near. The way is open. You can come in. Listen to what Isaiah says in 50, Isaiah 55 verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. What is he saying? He's saying that you don't have to have anything to offer to come. You can come in your poverty. You can come without anything to offer. I am just a sinner. I've got nothing I can offer you. 
Am I allowed to come? I'm poor. Yes, you can come. You can come just as you are this morning. There's a story of an old Scottish man who attends church and he's feeling down because of his sins. And when the communion plate is passed, he lets it pass him by. He refuses to take part of the elements because he feels that he's unworthy. Then he sees a young woman just down the aisle and she also refuses to partake. And she bursts into tears. And her tears jar him back to the truth of the gospel. In a whisper that could be heard across the church, he was heard to say, Take it, Lassie. Take it. It is meant for sinners. And he himself partook. So this morning, we're offering you communion. The broken body, the torn veil, the blood of Christ. You are welcomed in to God's presence, but you must be in Christ. This man, though, he's struggling with his sin, and many of you in the room are feeling this this morning. Christians struggle with sin. We struggle with the presence of it in our lives, and we do put ourselves in the outer courts when we don't need to. If you are in Christ, the message is come. Come. Come and partake. It's meant for sinners. That doesn't mean you accept sin in your life, and it doesn't mean you don't take it seriously. This reminds you that you must take it seriously. Because God took it seriously. He, killed, he allowed His own Son to die for it. And if this morning you haven't made a decision to be in Christ, wait. Don't come yet. Don't partake. Communion is for those who have made the decision to be in Christ. But I'm going to pray for a moment while the communion uh, uh, helpers come up. I just want you to close your eyes. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel this morning. If you've never partaken in communion before because you've never committed your life to Christ, you don't have to wait. You can partake today. All you need to do is to commit. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for you and your sins. Trust in what He has done for you and commit your life to Him. And Christian, as you come forward, you're doing the same thing. It's you're reminding yourself that you are committing your life to Christ. You're remembering what He did for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. We need to always remember what He did for us on the cross. So I want to ask you to come forward when you're ready. Come and take some bread. Come and take some juice. The bread represents the broken body of Christ. The juice represents His blood. And as we take it, we remember what He did for us on this Good Friday. And we enjoy that even now as we take it, we sit in the very presence of God, in the Holy of Holies, completely accepted and welcomed in. And if any of you are choosing to do that for the first time, 
and that means you are in Christ, you can come forward too. So when you're ready, please come forward. lead us in prayer and then we can partake together Lord our, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness thank you thank you Jesus for tearing the veil open once and for all making the way open for us to enter in. Thank you that you did this for sinners like me. Help us to live our lives for you in a way that will bring you glory and honor. We take this bread now and this juice, Lord, in remembrance of you and what you've done for us.
Let's eat together. It's a short service this morning. We are over time. Thank you for being patient with me. Did my best to get it done in half an hour, a little bit longer. I want to encourage you to go out and enjoy today. You don't leave the presence of God. He goes with you. He's with you always. Live for Him. Enjoy Him. Enjoy your Good Friday, and we'll see you on Sunday. Cheers. You can go.